You're a son. How did your dad raise you? Your father a boy or boy? How did you raise your son or sons? This week I learned that there's something called a boy code. It's a parenting rule discussed in a book entitled Real Boys, Rescuing Our Boys from the Myth, Myths of Boyhood by William Pollock. The author described the boy code as the rule that boys must be stoic and independent, macho and athletic, powerful and dominant. He cannot be warm, empathetic, or sensitive. Otherwise, they're just wimpy losers. Rescuing our boys from myths of boyhood requires more than understanding the problem. We must look to God and his word. Perhaps we've already bought into the counterfeits of masculinity in our culture, or we might unwittingly follow something similar to the boy code and stunt the development of our sons. Or maybe you are on the receiving end of something like that. We're continuing the life of David today, and we see his reign as king over Israel. And we also learn a lot about his role as a father. How will he handle his sons as they grieve him? Recall that David's family troubles start in 2 Samuel 13. Uh, the, the ones that start there has roots in the previous chapters. Remember that what happened in chapters 11 and 12 was a watershed moment. There's this great sin that marred his career, David's career as a ruler. Here's a reminder from the prophet Nathan in chapter 12. And turn there, I'm going to start from the middle of verse 7 and go to verse 12. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. In chapter 13, we saw how the sword has already claimed the life of David's firstborn son, Amnon. Recall how he raped his half-sister Tamar. Her full brother, Absalom, David's third son, plotted his revenge against Amnon. It was at a festive occasion of a sheep shearing that Absalom killed Amnon while he was drunk. Then Absalom fled to Geshur, the foreign land where his mother was born and his grandfather reigned. While David's sons were making all this mess, their father wasn't doing so much. He does display emotions. He was angry about Amnon. He wept for him. He mourned. He longed to go to Absalom. But days, months, and years went by. 
two full years between Amnon's sin and Amnon's death, three years of Absalom and Geshur, total five years of sitting around. What has happened with David? This is no way to be a parent or a king. There's neither mercy nor justice. What's it going to take to get him moving again towards his son who needs his father? Let's turn to 2 Samuel 14 and find out. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, please use the one in front of you, at the pew, one of the pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one as a gift from us to you. So it's uh, 2 Samuel 14. You'll find it in the Pew Bibles, page 221. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, help, O king. Then the king said to her, what troubles you? And she answered, indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons and two fought with each other in the field. And there was no one to part them but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother, whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. The king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, my lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. Then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy anymore, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Therefore, the woman said, please, let your maidservant speak another word to my lord, the king. And he said, say on. So the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that he banishes one's his vanished ones are not expelled from him. Now, therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the lord your God be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, 
is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing, but my lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right, I've granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his feet, foot, to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. So Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you, saying, Come here, so that I may send you to the king to say, why have I come from Geshur? It will be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. The so second Samuel 14 mainly deals with the events leading up to David's reunion with Absalom. The largest portion of this chapter is Joab's elaborate plan to move the king's heart. That's in verses 1 to 24. Now notice how verse 24 ends with the phrase, but did not see the king's face. Skip down a few verses and you'll see that same exact phrase again in verse 28 as if the narrator's picking up again where he left off. So then what lies between verses 24 and 28, that is verses 25 to 27, is another section. It's parenthetical. We're provided some background on Absalom. His giftedness, potential, and privilege. There's also some foreshadowing of what's to come. Let's just say his hair will get him into a hairy situation later. For now, there's this fiery situation from verses 28 to the rest of the chapter. We see how after two years in Jerusalem, Absalom finally gets to see the king's face and, and manage to get a kiss from him, approval. But we'll see there's a lot more than meets the eye behind the 
posturing, there's scheming. 2 Samuel 14 must be read in context of chapter 15. It turns out Absalom wasn't satisfied with Amnon's death or just coming back home. He wants to sit on dad's chair, the throne of Israel. We're not there yet, so we'll focus on the family drama that unfolds in today's passage. As we progress through it, uh, we observe three tough family lessons. Three tough family lessons. One, family division harms everyone. Family division harms everyone. I see that in verses 1 to 24. Two, family privileges must be cherished. Family privileges must be cherished. That's verses 25 to 27, that parenthetical section I mentioned. And three, family sin must be confronted. Family sin must be confronted. That's verses 28 to 33, the rest of the chapter. First, family divisions harm everyone. And you may hear that and say, of course family divisions harm everyone if you're the king of Israel and you got a conflict with the prince. Now how David treated Absalom had implication for all of God's people. The wise woman from Tekoa is right to point this out in verse 13. It says there, remember, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God. For the king speaks this one as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. This is a key verse. See, what happens privately between the king and his son does matter publicly to the people of God. That's true today, even when you, whether you're in politics or just an average citizen. Like, as a pastor, what happens in my family does matter to this congregation. And on a bigger scale, too. And other leaders in our church, deacons, elders. Even the world agrees that without fathers, children are at risk and at disadvantage. And that, in turn, puts the society at risk and at a disadvantage. Back to David and Absalom, they're divided. In comes Joab, that's David's nephew, and the chief captain of his army. He watches David, and he can't stand this anymore. He has a plan to bring Absalom back. Joab essentially becomes a movie director. Um, His star actress is a wise woman. Uh, That's probably a good casting choice. Remember the last wise man we saw was Jonadab, and he's been totally unhelpful, to say the least. Better to bring in this unnamed woman from Pekoa, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Not much known about the city, but its inhabitants share a common ancestry in Judah. That's David's tribe. And by the way, later you'll see the minor prophet Amos is from there. So Joab essentially gives the woman a script and access to the royal courts. There she's going to give a performance of a lifetime. And her role is to be a mourner, specifically a widow, bereft of her husband, bereft of one son by another. Does that sound familiar? 
Our relatives and people demand justice, life for life. But if that demand is met, that would mean the end of her late husband's line. That sounds similar to the story of Naomi in the book of Ruth, perhaps by design, but there's no mention of daughters-in-law or kinsman redeemer. David sees her helplessness and promises help in verse 8. Now in verses 9 through 11, there's some back and forth between the king and the woman. First, she says, if there's any evil in this case, none should be attributed to David. Now, David senses that the woman wants more assurance, right? So he tells her that anyone troubling her should see him, but even that's not enough for her. What she wants is right there in verse 11. For the first time in this chapter, someone brings up God. When the woman says, please let the king remember the Lord your God in the first half of verse 11, she's asking him to go beyond himself to swear by someone greater. It's like, yeah, your word's not good enough. I need you to swear an oath before God because stuff like I'm a man of my word is not going to cut it for me. In the second half of verse 11, David speaks the words she wants to hear, as the Lord lives. These are the words of a solemn vow. Right? You've seen these words earlier in 2 Samuel. The first time David as king uttered, as the Lord lives, in chapter 4, verse 9, he vowed vengeance on those who killed Saul's line, right? Saul's son. The last time he uttered, as the Lord lives, was chapter 12, verse 5. Prophet Nathan had just finished the story of the rich man who stole the one and only ewe lamb from the poor man. David's response is swift and as it turns out to be self-incriminating. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Now this time in chapter 14, verse 11, David utters, as the Lord lives, and guarantees protection for the woman's son. This is the turning point. Like Nathan before her, this woman got David to invoke God's name. She brings out the best in David, but uses it against him. Next, much like Nathan a few chapters ago, she's going to confront the king and his sin in verses 13 to 17. As I said earlier, verse 13 gets right to the point. Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? In other words, family divisions harm everyone, especially if you're the king of the nation. And as father and king, David can do something about this division. Of course, he can't reverse death, you know, bring back his deceased son, can't unspill the water of life. But just as David provided, I'm sorry, just as the Lord provided David the means to help the widow and her son, he can bring Absalom back. Ecclesiastes 8 4 says, Where the word of the king is, word of the king is, there is power. This wise woman gets David to confront his own problem while he addresses hers. She does that with humility and looks and speech and adds a little bit of flattery. She's saying David's pledge of safety is angelic. He knows how to discern good and evil. God is with him. Speaking of discernment, David knows a thing or two about playing pretend before a king. Check out that in 1 Samuel 21, Psalm 34. 
So he asks whether Joab got her to do this for him. Corner, she tells the truth that Joab wanted to bring about this change of affairs. That is in the stalemate between David and his son. The wise woman ends her talk by praising the king's heavenly wisdom that is unmatched on earth. So David wanted the truth. He got the truth, and it turns out he can't handle the truth. The truth being, family divisions harm everyone. So he allows Joab to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the, ver- but the words that we find in verse 24, the king's words there, reveal that the gap between them is only closed partially. The space between them has shrunk, true, but only in physical distance. We'll see what happens with that. But first, the narrator pauses the storyline for a closer look at Absalom. I guess it's thinking about the second tough family lesson. Family privileges must be cherished. Now, there's nothing wrong with having and enjoying family privileges. For one, if God gave you good looks, more power to you. How many of you looked in the mirror today, this morning, and said, God gave me good looks? Yes? I guess the laugh means yes. Now, I keep insisting to my wife that God gave me this gift as well, but she disagrees. But uh, Now, back to Absalom, and just one more silly thought, and I'm dating myself here. I admit, every time I picture Absalom in my mind, I think of Fabio Lanzoni, that handsome Italian model in those old TV commercials. It's like, I can't believe it's not butter. But David's son's probably not a blonde, though. His hair was definitely heavy, about five pounds. Anyways, again, nothing's wrong with family privileges, looking good. There are godly men in the Bible who are handsome, like you might recall Joseph in Genesis. But Absalom's spiritually closer to another looker, Saul, even if he's genetically closer to David. As for Absalom's children, we're not told anything about their mother, no names for the sons. The only name we know from his family is his beautiful daughter named Tamar. Recall that Tamar is not only an ancestral name of Judah, it's the name of Absalom's sister. She was violated by Amnon. Absalom named his daughter after her aunt to honor her. That's much more than what David did for her. So again, all that we see from verses 25 to 27 amount to family privileges. They're blessings from God. But as we continue, we'll see how Absalom's going to leverage them for evil purposes, his charm, his charisma, his looks. But family privileges must be cherished, not abused. And before we see how that goes, we need to finish this chapter. We must look at the third tough family lesson, family sin must be confronted. What happens in verse 28 parallels what happened previously in the last chapter, chapter 13, verse 23, before Absalom fled to Geshur. Like last time, there's a family sin that must be addressed. 
Yet there's this sort of icy, cold silence. The father and the son are in the same city, but that's about it. This one's on dad. I know if I have an issue with my kid, I can't just let it sit. Two full years, I have to take the initiative. Last time Absalom sat around that long, he came up with a plan to kill his brother. As a dad, I have to confront the past family sin. Have the tough talk, then hug it out. Honestly, I can't blame Absalom when he complains in verse 32, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Like, Why am I even here? But I can blame Absalom for the way he makes his way to the king's court. Sure, it's been frustrating. The prince is feeling what we feel when no one returns your phone call, right? Your request get ignored. Joab brought him to the royal city, but not to the king. He left Absalom hanging. So now he'll do whatever it takes to get Joab's attention. Trespassing, vandalism, arson. Sounds like a lot of fatherless sons we see today as well. As we saw in Baal Hazor's last chapter, Absalom has loyal servants who do whatever he asks. Not exactly a beautiful day in the neighborhood. More like George Wilson and Dennis the Menace here. Joab finally responds to Absalom, who justifies his petulant behavior. He gets what he wants. He also appears confident that he's done no wrong in killing Amnon. No remorse. Of course, he's wrong. But David sort of glosses over the matter. They may see each other face to face, but they don't face the problem. Family sin must be confronted. You may read today's passage and it reminds you of your relationship with your kids or your parents, broken or strained. Maybe it's been years since you've talked with your father or your son. Perhaps you agree with all the sermon points today, but you don't know what to do next. You may say to me, Song, you don't understand the divisions, the abuses, the sin in my family are too much to overcome. Now, I can relate to some degree the effects of family problems. I certainly recall those many years apart from my father. But you need more than sympathy from me to undo sin's consequences. Sin ruins lives. It destroys families and societies. No king, no wise guy, or no wise gal can get you out of that mess. We must turn to Jesus. And this is the good news. Jesus is God who became flesh. He is the Son of God. Unlike Absalom or many sons we see today, he was humble. He seeks the will of the Father who sent him. 
He was perfectly obedient even through suffering and death. He lived a holy life without blemish. He possessed wisdom and knew what was in man. He helped widows, even restoring the one who lost her only son. But Jesus was rejected. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Even the religious authorities hated him. As Israel persecuted Jesus, they proved themselves to be rebellious rebellious children. But even as he was despised, it was part of the plan to reconcile us to God. Jesus went to Jerusalem, then he was crucified for our sins, paid in full the penalty we should pay. We talk about hell. And Christ met the demands of justice at the cross. Our destruction and deception, sins of thought, word, and actions, sins we committed, commands we failed to obey. Jesus took all our evil, and he didn't gloss over it. He endured his terrible consequences as our substitute. After completing his work, Jesus breathed his last. He was buried and rose again from the grave. He ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Until then, he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for the saints. Now we can go to the royal courts of the heavenly king. Instead of eternity of distance and silence, we may enter God's presence by the spirit of adoption, call him Abba, Father. This is possible through God's Son, Jesus Christ, because he's right there next to the Father. He is the way to the Father. What we, mu- what we must do is repent. That means turn away from selfish living and self-righteousness and by faith turn to Christ. Put your hope of heaven in him. You cannot earn eternal life or be good enough to deserve it. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Better than King David, our King Jesus offers a genuine heavenly welcome into the Father's arms. He offers a privilege and relationship without overlooking glaring sin problem. He confronts it and solves it. You're an unbeliever. Recognize the weight of sin. Be forgiven by Christ. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Don't waste another day. Listen to the inviting words of our next song. Come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling calling, O sinner, come home. Let's pray. Lord, we see the mess that we made in, in our lives, and we're reminded as we look at scriptures that it's filled with people Though they are heroes of faith, 
or they have failed in many ways. And most glaring of these are the ways that sin has destroyed relationships with our parents, with our children. We can easily point fingers and say we're better than them, but Lord, we know that we've all failed to some degree to love you first of all, our Father in heaven. Fail to love our children. We fail to love our parents to the best of we can do according to your will. But Lord, even despite all these failures, as we're reminded of them, we're thankful for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, your son. Pray all these things in his name. Amen.